very conscious of not using design as an elitist tool yeah. that excludes people, but rather as an inclusive one that helps people understand. If you don't pursue your passions and your curiosities, you become stale very quickly. And you can't rely on clients to make you innovative. This is all a marathon, not a sprint. Hey everyone, welcome to Design Work, a podcast where we learn from creatives who are designing their work, lives and everything in between. I'm your host, Kate Darby. You'll also find me designing brands at my own studio and being co-founder of Dovetail X, a platform to discover and curate epic creative talent. Go check it out at dovetailx.com. This week, I speak to Deroy Parazza, co-founder of Hyperact, a social impact studio based in Brooklyn. Hyperact has worked with everyone from Spotify to Amnesty International, all through the lens of creating meaningful design for the common good. Deroy and I caught up in a cafe round the corner from their studio in Brooklyn. You might catch a few goings on in the background, just pretend like you're there. Deroy fills us in on what it means to be a social impact agency, the influence of baseball cards on his design career, and what makes a good side project. Okay, let's get on with it. So I'm here today in Brooklyn with D-Roy from Hyperact. Thanks for joining me. So yeah, I thought we could start with where you first realized design was the direction you wanted to go in your career. Uh, I think my first realization, I don't know if it was at at the time I thought it was a realization, but I think it happened when I discovered baseball cards. Okay, nice. Um, baseball cards had logos on them. They had statistics on the back. They had a combination of photography and graphics and composition and stuff. And although, you know, a lot of them were kind of ugly, it was the first time I had really, like, had an object in my hand that I was conscious had been, like, designed. Created, yeah. And uh, it was the first time I had it. I, I really like remember feeling any kind of affinity to a brand. Yeah. Um, Who was your team? The Montreal Expos. Oh, nice. At the time, I grew up in Miami. I was, yeah. so I was born in Cuba. I grew up in Miami. Uh, and Miami didn't have a baseball team. Right. Yet. The Marlins didn't come around until the early 90s. And this right. was in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, I just loved the Expos logo. It was like the coolest thing. It was like different than every other baseball yeah. logo. It doesn't, they don't exist anymore. But. It had, uh, you know, this M that was blue, white, and red, and within the M, you know, there's an E for Expos and a B for baseball. So yeah. they had cleverly like integrated it, fit in an yeah. M and E and a B into one mark. And I just thought that was the most clever thing ever. Yeah. Where all the other logos were sort of like, you know, more like straight straightforward letter forms or yeah, yeah. or uh, crests or whatever yeah so yeah that was sort of my my first uh, realization that I liked what was happening on, yeah. on this thing on this object and then um, I, I mean since I was a little kid I had always drawn a lot I had like it's kind of a little bit obsessive I had notebooks for every sort of category of drawing I had a notebook for like superheroes a notebook for cars and motorcycles a notebook yeah. for um, sports players and that was always sort of part of yeah. my background. Yeah, cool. And so you went and studied design here in New York? 
Yeah, so I grew, so the other the other factor was that my parents had um, uh, their own business mm -hmm. and started at home and then um, I, I started working with them from the age of like, I don't know, eight or nine, mm -hmm. just like helping them out. And it was a sort of a graphic design business. They, they started, it was typesetting because this yes. is again, the 80s. Yeah. And um, it was very sort of blue collar typesetting, like mm -hmm. forms and like very yeah. like kind of blue collar brochures mm -hmm. and stuff, business cards. Um, and my, my, my dad made rubber stamps. Yeah. And so I was always sort of in the world of print shops mm -hmm. and office supplies. I was like early on, like would go out with my dad and help open accounts. So yeah. like the sales part of yeah. running a design business was yeah, sort of kind of comes from there. Um, and, and being sort of on press, I was on press since I was a kid. And mm -hmm. so like that sort of all rubbed off. I didn't really know yeah. I wanted to be a graphic designer yet, but. Yeah. There. I think a lot of people, yeah, graphic design is something that they don't really learn. There's like the term for it until much later, but there's all these little factors that they sort of see coming into their lives, like the baseball cards or these little yeah. things that affect them, or maybe ads and things like that that just like resonate and you don't know why. And eventually somebody's like, oh, that's graphic design. And you're like, cool, Does, will somebody pay me? And they're like, yeah, like amazing. Yeah, somebody but has to yeah, lay that shit out. Yeah, and it's kind of similar to me. Like I grew up in my parents' design studio as well, and like, I think growing up in that thing where people are, you're seeing all the sides of the business is like a really interesting kind of place to be as a kid and you don't really realise it at the time necessarily but looking back you can see how it affects your, the way you design is maybe not necessarily to make something look good but it's also to like have an impact on that person's like business or the, that client. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I always sort of have my parents in the back of my mind when I design things because I'm very conscious of not using design as an elitist tool yeah. that excludes people, but rather as an inclusive one that helps people understand, regardless of what their, yeah, you know, what their background is or what their level of sophistication is or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of a nice segue into telling us a bit more about Hyperact and the model that you guys have and the kinds of work you do. Sure. So Hyperact, uh, I. I feel like HyperRect has sort of two incarnations. The first half of our existence from about 2001 to 2009 was my partner Julia and I just kind of figuring out how to be designers and how to run a studio. Um, we didn't have a very focused point of view. We were just trying to like figure out how to make it. Mm -hmm. We've both been illustration majors. Um, we didn't have a business background really other than our like, you know, kind of experiences with with our parents and whatever. And um, yeah, it was just do anything for anybody and mm -hmm. just try to make it. And around 2009, um, after having some experience under our belt and having a better sense of what we, mm -hmm. what really turned us on, we decided that we wanted to focus our efforts on social design. Mm -hmm. um, and a couple things led to that. Um, a was like, the depths of the recession. Mm -hmm. So we needed to change something mm -hmm. and just take a risk and do something different. That was a good time to do it. B, um, Barack Obama had just gotten elected and the general public was really motivated and excited yeah. and hopeful. Uh, social issues were sort of sexy for the first time since probably the 60s. Yeah. Um, 
And the other sort of important thing that the Obama campaign did was they really educated the social impact space, mm -hmm. the nonprofits and philanthropies and foundations and think tanks of the world mm -hmm. about the power of digital tools. Everybody wanted to copy what the Obama campaign did to sort of rally the general public and reach a much broader audience. Um, and that opened up a lot of opportunity for us because the, the space, the social design space was really kind of a barren desert of design. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of really mediocre, poorly produced design. Um, a lot of organizations really didn't think it was important yet. Mm -hmm. It was a bit of a turning point. Yeah. Um, and so we decided, let's go for it. Let's, uh, let's actually focus on the stuff we love doing. Yeah. Stuff working for agencies had kind of been a drag and had been a little soul-sucking. Yeah. And we really wanted to work directly with clients and directly with clients who we're good people working on good challenges um, and, you know, work that we really felt was meaningful. Yeah. So we pared down our portfolio and only showed the stuff that would be relevant to this kind of client. Yeah. We changed the tone of our messaging yeah. um, and we declared that we wanted to create meaningful design for the common good. Yeah. And all of a sudden, different people started reaching out, and uh, new opportunities started appearing. And one step at a time, that 2010 was a year of, of a lot of growth for us. Yeah. Um, we went from four designers to like eight designers. We started working with a design business consultant that helped us really get our shit together yeah. from a business perspective to make this a sustainable business. Oh. To put together more professional proposals, to charge what we needed to be charging for yeah. things to hire the right staff mm -hmm. and the right positions to yeah. fill these these needs and uh, and it was sort of a new beginning mm -hmm. and over the next several years after that this is 2010 really when we when, when we kind of hit the ground running um, over the over the next four or five years we saw this space completely shift from more print based like sort of annual report driven yeah communication space yeah. to uh, primarily now digital yeah. space um, where the audience isn't just the you know 100 or 200 funders or or grantees it's mm -hmm. now a much broader audience and yeah creating yeah. social awareness around some of those campaigns and missions and things like that yeah at the end of the day it's all about breaking down complex social issues so more people yeah. can understand them get engaged with them yeah. get involved and participate in civic life. Yeah, and so what has it been like sort of transferring these organizations, their mindset from, you know, the annual reports printed, they're just going out to the funders to, okay, we should do something digital that's going to reach all these other people rather than just our sort of stakeholders. Was that challenging in some areas or were they sort of like, sure? Um, I mean, I would say that as generally, like the, the sector as a whole kind of moves in block. Yeah. They, it's not that we went and convinced them that sure. they needed to be digital. I mean, sure, we preached that, but yeah. really they just saw that all of their peers were doing it. Yeah. And, um, you know, during that span of time, a new sort of generation of, of 
people started entering the communications department yeah. and they were younger and had were kind of digital more digital native yeah, and yeah. weren't as afraid of tech, of of using digital yeah. tools uh, and channels and that that helped a great deal yeah um, I think it's you know these are sort of broad trends mm -hmm. and and everybody needs to kind of stay on the train or, or yeah get left behind yeah that's cool and so do you think you're seeing more creative studios and agencies start to shift towards this model as well where they're doing like more social good projects or they're becoming purely social good projects like you guys um, or do you think that the industry as a whole could maybe make more of an effort to incorporate those kind of projects into their portfolio? Um, I mean, I think there's way more awareness now and way more interest in it now than there was when we yeah. started doing it and when we focused on it. I think when we focused on it, everybody would just kind of look at us like, these people are crazy, they're never <laughs> going to survive or be sustainable, working yeah. for mostly nonprofits or, or government entities or whatever. Yeah. Um, and we were just like, you know, we weren't making a ton of money to begin with, so we had nothing to lose and we just wanted to yeah. try to be idealistic and do the work that we wanted to do. Over the last several years, especially as the, as the space has become more digital, mm -hmm. there have been more players, more studios that sort of compete for work with us yeah. that were sort of born as digital native studios right. that also do branding and also do other stuff. Mm -hmm. We kind of went the other way. Yeah. We came more from, from branding, from print, yeah. and... and storytelling yeah. and came into the digital space because that's what is the thing now yeah um, so yeah I mean th there's there's definitely a more competitors now mm -hmm. more more people in the space and there are also commercial more commercial commercially driven studios that have more awareness and do like a, you know sort of pro bono projects from time to time yeah. and social impact projects from time to time um, but I think by and large, it's still the domain of idealists who aren't in it because they want to grow to be like hundreds of people and yeah. who aren't preoccupied with selling off their studio for many millions of dollars after they yeah. have had enough. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's definitely, you have to have, you have to love it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so... The other thing that I can tell that you guys obviously are really passionate and driven about it because you do a lot of side projects as well, sort of things that nobody sort of told you you need to go do this or you'll earn a lot of money from this necessarily, but you've kind of gone out and done things like the story hack yeah. thing and stuff like that. So what what's the motivation behind a lot of those projects? The motivation behind a lot of those projects is just that we... If if you don't pursue your passions and your curiosities, uh, you become stale very quickly. <laughs> yeah. And you can't rely on clients to make you innovative. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing against them, but clients are primar are generally going to be pretty risk averse and they're mm -hmm. going to ask you for things that they already see in your portfolio. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's rare that you find a client that asks you to do something that you haven't done before. Mm -hmm. And in order to buck that you have to do that yourself, take yeah. it upon yourself to mm -hmm. show that you can always stretch and, mm -hmm. and you know, sort of push your, your capabilities and, and your range. Mm -hmm. um, but mostly it's just because when I feel like doing something, I want to have the freedom to be able to do it. Like, yeah. if I'm going to run my own studio, 
if I can't do that, then why the fuck am I running my own studio? You yeah. know, like if I'm gonna just completely always just depend on doing what the client wants me to do, then I might as well be working anywhere else. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the thing that can be challenging with side projects though is, you know, getting getting it off the ground. Like, you know, you can have the idea and stuff for it, but getting it off the ground, seeing it through to the end, and then it also being, you know, a successful project, maybe getting some recognition or fulfilling its goals either way can be challenging. So what do you think makes a good side project? Side projects are all about momentum mm -hmm. and and about having like somebody really be the cheerleader for the project. Yeah. Um, you have to have somebody who owns it and who drives it and who prioritizes it and who won't give up until they see it exist. Mm -hmm. Even sometimes prioritizing it over more important in theory things. Yeah. Um, so that you sort of capture the momentum of of that moment when you have the idea. Yeah. Um, the way I like to approach these projects is by starting out with the sort of simplest, smallest, like kernel of what the idea could be. Yeah. Like the idea of the MVP. Yeah. Um, how can we make something quick that sort of demonstrates and shows the potential yeah. for, for the idea? And, uh, you know, how do we make that happen without overthinking it? Yeah. Just kind of get something up, see whether people are excited about it. Yeah. Limits test it and then gauge whether you want to sort of keep investing in it. Mm -hmm. MVP the side project. MVP the side project, yeah. basically, yeah. Cool. So, we did one example of that is um, On the Grid, yeah. which is our uh, sort of our collection of creative yeah. neighborhood guides. I use that a lot when I'm traveling um, as well. It's great. I've really enjoyed that. <laughs> great to hear. Um, so, that started out as us wanting to, this is when we moved to, the, to Gowanus, our, mm -hmm. the neighborhood where the studio is. Uh, four years ago, we wanted to just map the for ourselves our, our favorite places in the neighborhood and sort of show off some pride and yeah. whatever. It's a neighborhood that's kind of industrial and it's not easy to find the places, but there are great places. Yeah. Um, so we published that and designed it and, and sort of branded it as on the grid to begin with because mm -hmm. the whole idea was to put these places on the grid, places yeah. that were sort of hard to find. And uh, when we built it, we, we kind of built it with the idea in the back of our heads that maybe this could be like a replicable thing that other design studios might want to do for their own neighborhoods. Yeah. So we should kind of build this so that it can scale. Yeah. And we released it and it got some attention and got some design press and stuff. And then we in invited um, friends at other design studios in the city to see if they'd be interested in curating their own neighborhoods. We got two bites, so two other studios, yeah. Original Champions of Design and Barrel curated neighborhoods in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, it was a platform. Yeah. And other design studios were like, I want in, I want to do that. Yeah. Um, and it started spreading. And by the end of the year, we had something like 100 neighborhoods curated in like a bunch of cities. And yeah. We're up to five, over 500 neighborhoods now. Awesome. In over 100 cities. Yeah. Um, and it's this sort of collaborative exchange of information. It's just yeah. friends sharing their favorite local places with other friends so that when we yeah. all travel, we all know where to go. Yeah. Um, but it started out as a very simple concept. Concept. Yeah. Nice. And we still to this day haven't, I mean, it's not something that we monetize. We kind of do it and manage it and maintain mm -hmm. it because we love it yeah. as a side project. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it, it, we probably get more attention for projects like that than we do for our client work. Yeah. So yeah, that's, it's fun that you're able to like 
sort of stretch your, flex your creative muscles on those kinds of things. Show off some new skills. And Sometimes you just have to believe in the idea even though it, there's not like dollar signs at the end of it. Yeah. You know? Totally. And just do crazy things. Yeah. And sometimes that's, the, and that's like the best ones usually because they're really sincere and genuine ideas. They're not like, oh, if we, you know, we can make this much money off of it. This is the market opportunity. Yeah. It's like you can, can overcomplicate things. It. Yeah, totally. And it lets you just get on with the design problem because you're not having to think about how do we monetize it more. Yeah. yeah. And those things can come later if it genuinely is a good idea. That's cool. It's, yeah, I, think, I, I feel like thinking about that stuff might make you richer, but I think it fucks the product up right off out of the gate because yeah. you think you're prioritizing things that aren't what your users really care about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for us, our users, our initial users were just us. Mm -hmm. We just wanted to make something that was useful for us mm -hmm. and for like, you know, our friends. Yeah, totally. And so, how do you guys, how do you manage all of these? You've got the studio projects with the clients. You've got side projects. Do you have any like life balance going on in there? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, we have great project managers, mm -hmm. and we juggle a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of sort of frustrating stopping and starting of projects that just is inevitably happens. Yeah. You know. But you know what happens throughout a year is that you have spans of time where you're super busy and spans of time where you're like kind of in between projects or like waiting for people to give you feedback or whatever and there's dead time. Mm -hmm. So if you always have a, a project or two queued up that you can spend some time on mm -hmm. when those lulls happen, yeah. then you know you kind of try to inch it along as much as you can mm -hmm. and then you put it down until you can get back to it and you know if it becomes an important enough project it gets its own sort of safe space to be yeah. a project. Yeah. Um, but it's a lot of juggling, you know, it's not perfect, it's not clean, it's not easy, um, it's frustrating at times mm -hmm. because things can move slow. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think with one of, one of the things I always try to preach to especially younger designers mm -hmm. is that this is all a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. If you're if everything is based on the instant gratification of having something successful tomorrow, mm -hmm. you're going to be disappointed most of the time. Yeah. In order to really like see things develop, whether it's your business, your your your, you know, in the case, in our case, our studio, or whether it's a, a project or a product or an idea, it takes time, mm -hmm. and you have to be to get comfortable with the fact that there's going to be a trajectory with ups and downs yeah. and you have to kind of see it through and stick with it because the rewards yeah. kind of come later, you know? Yeah, totally. And I feel like it can be harder and harder to think that way when you see, I mean, it's so much stuff flying at you on social media, awards and things like that, especially in the creative industry, you know, we love celebrating ourselves and we're very good at making everybody hear about it as well. So it can be frustrating when you are just sitting at home trying to create a logo. For Everything looks easier business. on an Instagram yeah. post or on a tweet. And exactly. you just kind of feel like, shit, this looks like... 140 characters of success, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, I try to look at social media as little as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm definitely trying to cut it down. That's, yeah, definitely good for younger designers to remember that because it just looks like everybody had success overnight when you're coming out of design school. 
Yeah, I think that combined with also just the fervor of the startup space where mm. like you have like overnight millionaires that are yeah. you know like 20 mm -hmm. um, I think it sets people up for a lot of disappointment because yeah. it's just like un unrealistic expectations you know that happens to like one in a million yeah totally it's not the norm you know so HyperX most people have to work for the money <laughs> HyperX obviously had some really great successes so far but where's what's the trajectory for HyperX so you kind of see like you're not really aiming to necessarily be like hundreds of people or anything but where are you guys looking to grow more is it more social impact more side projects so um, I've done a lot of talking about this recently um, I can answer that on a couple different levels in terms of our focus um, we stay sort of agnostic of medium mm -hmm. because today it's digital tomorrow, tomorrow it's social whatever yeah. it's like you know it, it changes all the time yeah for us it's about helping people understand the world mm -hmm. so they can make it better and that whatever that medium is we don't care we do it through storytelling we do it through branding we do it through digital that doesn't matter to us um, what's interesting to us right now that we feel is lacking in the space of social design is the, the entire social space needs has been sort of inching closer to popular culture mm -hmm. through the digital world mm -hmm. but it's still sort of not speaking the language of popular culture it's still like right. a bunch of like wonky academic people over here trying to be cool yes. and trying to make people interested in the things that are really important in the sure. world but doing it in a way that's like really kind of hard to not have a headache about yeah so we're really interested in exploring the space between sort of arts and culture and um, social impact and, and trying to see how we can sort of cross-pollinate yeah. them a little bit more through our work. Cool. Use the arts to help communicate important social issues more. So yeah. that's sort of one broad thematic area that we want to explore over the next several years. And then from a studio sort of operational perspective, we're we're a studio constantly involved in just learning and evolving our processes, mm -hmm. yeah. our culture, the way that we all relate to each other, work together. Um, that's sort of an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, we'd like to get to the point where we can sort of replicate what we're doing here in other places. Cool. We're not interested in growing to be like a studio of hundreds, mm -hmm. but the idea of being able to bring um, influences from just working in different cultures and in different places yeah. and sort of cross-pollinate the studios that way is really interesting to us. Yeah, nice. Well, on that note, we'll leave it here. And thank you so much for talking to us. It's been awesome to hear about HyperX process, where you've been, where you're going, and we're really excited to see it grow. It's been a total pleasure. Thanks for being interested. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Terry. Thanks for tuning in to Design Work. If you enjoyed it, give us a rating to help spread the word and subscribe to get your weekly fix. That's right, it's weekly now. You can also find us keeping social on Twitter at DesignWorkPod and Instagram at DesignWorkPodcast. Design Work is brought to you by Dovetail X. Find epic creative talent and assemble teams for your next project. Head to dovetailx.com to get started.
See you back here for more interviews with trailblazing creatives on how they design work.